All right, thank you guys so much. You may be seated. We're going to go ahead and open to uh, the 15th chapter of Revelation. Guys, we're, we're, uh, we're on the tail end of our study in the book of Revelation. We're going to be um, covering um, these last few chapters uh, over the next several weeks. And, you know, by the time December rolls around, we should be pretty much wrapping this whole thing up. I know it's been a it's been an in-depth and intensive study. I, I wanted to do this book justice, and, you know, it's one of those things you could probably spend more time than we have on it. And, uh, you know, one year, I think, is going to be enough for us, hopefully, to have some tools for each uh, of us as individuals to go deeper, to know how to approach the book, at least to have a couple of different ways to look at the book as we study it and as you continue to study it on your own and, and personally apply it to your life and and as I was sharing with our small group, our journey class this morning, I want to emphasize this, you know, off the top because um, you guys know me and, and you know that I, I love to think and I love to discover and, and I love to, 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 to talk about all of these things, all of the ways that we can figure out what may be or how things might happen or, or you know, what is, what is the interpretation of, of these mysterious texts in, in the book like the book of Revelation. And, and I, I, love, I love talking about it. I love studying it. I love discovering all of it. But if we're doing this as only an academic exercise, if, if this is only uh, just a way to gain more knowledge. If this is, if we're studying the book of Revelation just to say, hey, I think I got it figured out. I'm right, you're wrong, or, you know, I know what this means and, and, and you know, you don't, or, you know, I think I, I got the understanding that you don't have or something like that, uh, you know, we're, we're wasting our time. We're, 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 we're not doing what God would have us to do with, with any part of the scripture, with any part of the text which is to take what we've learned and then put it in to practice in our daily lives. And, and I think and I pray that if anything this study has done in your life is as much as it has done in my life, is that it, ha it has brought the sense of urgency um, that, that we are living in, in very difficult times. And, and the way things are, are looking in our world today is that they're, they're very well could get worse before it gets better. And knowing what we know and seeing the world in the condition that it is in, guys, this world needs Jesus. This world needs the hope of heaven. This world needs to know that there is a God in heaven who has revealed himself to mankind, who has made the way for us to be restored and to have the free gift of eternal life and to be able to have a relationship with the living God and to know that we can have uh, eternal life in Christ. And so all of those things should always come to the forefront of any Bible study that we do, any Bible study that we have. There should always be that practical application. What are we doing with it as God's people, as individuals, in the life influence that we have, okay, in our friends and with our families and in our coworkers and our classmates and our neighbors and, and all of the people in our lives, Again, it, you know, if we walk away from this study saying, hey, I think I know what Revelation 9 or Revelation 11 or the, who the two witnesses are or what the trumpets and the bowls and the plagues, and if we know all that information and we're not doing anything with it, guys, then we have failed. And so I really want to make sure that we always remember and keep that in perspective, even as we look at these very interesting um, topics and uh, themes in the book, okay? So... Just having said all of that, let's, let's jump into Revelation 15 this morning. And the title of this message is that we're going to look at the Song of Moses. The Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. And so since it's a very short chapter, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and read it to you. And, and chapters 15 and 16 really are um, basically connected. I mean, they, they really go hand in hand. Chapter 15 is kind of introducing to us the, the final seven plagues that are revealed to us in chapter 16, but I, I thought it would be good to just take a minute to look at the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb as we, uh, as we dive into this interesting chapter together. So Revelation 15, if you have a Bible with you, let's, let's start in verse 1. I'm just going to read the whole chapter. It is very short. And then we'll jump in together. 
okay? Revelation 15.1, it says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what happened to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. Also, those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass, glass with harps of God in their hands. Now, I like to say guitars because I love to play my guitar. But they're harps, but they are stringed instruments. So get that picture in your mind, okay? These are believers who have conquered the beast, and they're, they're worshiping. They're playing guitar. They're singing, playing in the throne room of heaven, right? Around the throne. And they sing the song of Moses. That should get your attention off the top. The servant of God and the song of the Lamb. And then there, this, is, this is kind of the condensed version of this song, okay? Verse, uh, verse 3, it says, They said, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, and all nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And then after this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was open. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So here we have a sign in heaven, and John again is just, he's just getting an, another perspective. And, and I can't tell you that enough when it comes to the book of Revelation, how we have these, these different themes and these different layers upon layer and different perspectives that John is given. And it's like allowing him to be able to tell different aspects of the story from different viewpoints from different perspectives. And so John is getting another glimpse into uh, the New Jerusalem, the city of the living God, which has the, the temple there in the heavenly tent. There's a heavenly temple, remember, just as there was a, an earthly tent or tabernacle, there's a heavenly temple where the throne room of God is in the midst of it, in the most holy place of the universe. And so John is getting another glimpse, and there by this sea of glass, you've got worshipers. And these are unique worshipers. But they're singing a song. And it says they're singing the song of Moses. Now, you guys know how much I've tried to emphasize the connections between the book of Revelation and the Old Testament. If you don't have a handle and if you don't have a, a good grasp of what's happening from an Old Testament perspective and the prophetic patterns that we're going to look at here in a minute from the Old Testament, the, the book of Revelation really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so once again, here we have Moses, probably the central figure in the Old Testament, being brought to the forefront of this passage, okay? So we have the song of Moses, and we have the song of the Lamb. And so when it comes to where are we uh, in the timeline, as you can see, uh, the seven bowls, are poured out right near the end. Now, I don't know exactly how long it's going to take for these seven bowls to be poured out upon the beast and his kingdom. But, I mean, this is getting very near to the very end, okay? And so this vision is just prior to when these bowl judgments are released. And so we know that the time in, in, in the book of Revelation is getting close to the end in this passage because these bowls are getting prepared to be released upon the earth. And so that kind of gives you an idea of where we are in the timeline, okay? Now, as I just shared with you, I read those two, uh, the first four verses when it's talking about the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. So the first thing I just want to kind of emphasize to, with you this morning is, is this. God has blessed us with a gift, and that gift is song. Song is a gift. Singing is a gift. Music is a gift. Um, you know, I, 
I don't know anybody that doesn't really like music. Now, I know there's all kind of different types and different flavors and different genres and different styles. But, I mean, just about every person in every culture and every civilization throughout all of human history has had a very, um, very primary emphasis on singing and worshiping and musical expression. And I think there's a reason for that is because it's something that God innately put within each and every one of us. And the reason that I know that is because just like so many other things, God is the ultimate musician. God is the ultimate songwriter. And he is the master singer. And so because this is who he is in nature, he has made us in his image. And that's why music and song and singing has become such a wonderful gift but from God to mankind. So let's think about what does the gift of song, when, when it's used in its proper perspective, in its proper context, what does song really do for us, especially as believers? Now, look, obviously, you've got secular music, and, and I, there's a lot of secular music that I appreciate and that I like, and I can listen to for entertainment and enjoyment. But then you also have sacred music, what we would call, what we just, what we just participated in today, right? What we would call worship or praise and worship. And, and that is, a, is, in a, is in a different category. And I believe God gave us the gift of, of song and the gift of singing for at least, I mean, these are the three, the, probably the primary ways, but there's many other reasons and many other uh, results of it. But these are three that I think that really jump out to me. Music unites us. Music uplifts us. Singing does. Worship. And it brings us comfort. Um, and, and here's what's so amazing that we'll, we'll begin to see in this passage. It's not just in this life that we'll, we'll experience music and song in these ways. But it will also be in the life to come. In the kingdom. And so that's why I believe that there is tremendous benefit when it comes to understanding the importance of this musical element uh, that God has given us as his children, okay? Now, let's talk about, let's talk about worship for just a second because you, you guys know that I, I'm musically um, gifted and I, I, I'm the, the worship pastor of this campus, uh, not only as a preaching pastor or teaching pastor, but also oversee our worship ministry. And, and music has always been part of my life. And, and once I finally figured out that, God gave me musical ability not to use it selfishly for my own pleasures and desires, but he gave it to me so that I could bring him glory and lead his people and, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's when music really began to be satisfying uh, in my life. And, and it is one of the greatest blessings that I get to do every week. When I, when, I, when I get to stand up here and lead you guys in singing and in worship, it is a tremendous blessing. It is something that I truly enjoy. Um, and so I, I want you guys to understand how thankful and how grateful I am to be able to do that and how, one, how blessed we are to have so many other people like Bellman and Cameron and our praise team and our band and those people that, that use that gift and use that ability to, to, to bless you um, and hopefully to bless God uh, each and every week when we come together. But, I, you know, it's funny because I've had people ask me before, you know, well, well how can we all really... How will we all be united in heaven when there's so many different styles and types of music? Because if you know anything about churches, what's the number one controversy usually in a church? Music controversy, right? You know, are we going to hold fast to our traditional ways and be committed to southern gospel and, and the ways that we grew up? Or are we going to move into this new contemporary style of worship and get ahead, you know, get become more appealing and attractive to the new generation who who can't identify with old uh, traditional music and those kind of things? And and I mean, you've seen churches split over this thing, and you've seen people leave churches over the style of worship, uh, and and it's it is a shame. And you know, one of the things that I learned. Early in my, my ministry career, is, it was one of the greatest things that ever happened to us. We, we hosted a, a choir from Uganda. It was called the Ugandan Thunder. 
And this, these are orphans who are brought together in, from Uganda and they, they get a chance to tour the United States and they get a chance to come to different churches to raise awareness about their ministry and about um, adoption and those kind of things. But, but man, I'm going to tell you, these kids, they know how to worship. And I promise you, it, they worship unlike any other way you've ever experienced. It's not Southern gospel. It's not traditional hymns. It's not contemporary music. But they worship with their own style coming out of that culture. And so a lot of people say, so, so what's it going to be like in heaven? I mean, some of your ideas of heaven is going to be, you know, the Bill Gaither band on stage for, you know, for a thousand years. And it's just like, just can't get enough Gaither, right? And then some of you are like, no, it's got to be like contemporary worship. I mean, if we're not doing contemporary worship in heaven, then, man, I'm going to be bored to death. And, and how can I be bored in heaven? I mean, that's, that's impossible, right? Guys, look, here's the thing. We are completely um, missing the whole point. When we get to heaven, there will be a perfect unity. There will be a perfect harmony. And plus, the, the worship, anything that we can imagine on this earth and in this life using our own limited musical abilities and gifts and songs, none of that will be able to what? To compare. You know, our eyes have not seen, our ears have not heard, our minds have not even imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And so when it comes to what is it going to be like, there's not going to be any musical controversy. There's not going to be any worship controversy in heaven because everything in heaven will be so perfect. It'll be so beyond anything that we have limited worship to here on this earth that, guys, you don't have to worry about any of that kind of stuff, okay? And so that's why when we, when we understand the gift of song is that we need to understand the power of singing as God's people because it gives us a, a, a component of unity. It gives us a component of harmony. That's why we see Moses is a worship leader. David, who's one of the, the greatest heroes of the faith, he was a worship leader. He wrote many of the Psalms. And we have an entire book in the Bible dedicated to nothing but singing and worship. And that's why Jesus himself is a worship leader. And so when we get to see how valuable and how much of a blessing worship is in our lives, we need to understand that when we come together every week, this is something I want to say as a worship leader myself, when we come together every week and we sing together and we open up our mouths at the same time as one voice, guys, that's probably on par with probably the most powerful spiritual activity that you may do that entire week. And let me tell you why. It's because faith comes through hearing, and spiritual warfare comes through the proclamation of the gospel, that when we verbally out loud uh, proclaim and speak out the truth and the power of the gospel. We do that together as one voice. And guys, there's so much power in the unity of God's people coming together. And so when we do that, we're doing spiritual warfare on a level that none of us could ever experience on our own. There's something unique and something very powerful and very special about worship. So listen, this is where I want to challenge you. Listen, I know not every song is your style. Not every song is my style. You're not going to be able to be satisfied with every single type of song or, or um, style or genre of music that we use up here uh, at Christ Church. And, and, and we try to be very deliberate about the, the songs that we do choose and pick uh, at this church. But guys, at the end of the day, if your heart is right with God and you understand what's really happening as we come together and we cherish this gift that God has given us, that this is something God has given us right here, right now, in real time, that allows us to come together and unites us as one voice. And I'm going to tell you something, the powers of hell and the kingdom of darkness, they flee from that. They run from the fact when God's people come together and sing at the very same time, the truth and the power out loud into the air, the truth of the gospel. There's tremendous power. There's tremendous harmony. There's tremendous unity in that. So guys, it doesn't have to be your 
type of music. Now, here is the one challenge that we should all hold ourselves to when it comes to what we sing. It's about the substance of what we sing. If we're singing the truth of the gospel, that's what matters most. If we're not singing the truth of the gospel, then that's, that song should not be sung in a church. You understand what I'm saying? So that's always the measure. It's the substance of what we sing and not necessarily the style of what we sing. Okay, but you know as well as I do, everybody in this room, I want you to think about a time when a, a worship song, a worship song, God used that to carry you through a difficult time. Think about that. Think about the uplifting power of music. Think about the comfort that we receive when it comes to the gift of music and the gift of song that God has given us as a blessing, okay? And so when I see this, when I read this passage of Scripture as a worship pastor, I'm like, man, this is just, this is profound to me because, guys, when we get together on Sunday morning, I'm going to be honest with you, sometimes I'm not feeling it. Can anybody else identify? You're not feeling it. You're just, you, just don't, you, just don't, you just don't feel it. You don't want to sing. It's just not in you. It's just like prayer to me. When do we need to pray the most? When we feel like it the less, the least, right? When you least feel like praying is when you need to, 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 to dig in and to press in and to pray the most. It's the same thing when it comes to worship. Sometimes you come in here and you're just not feeling it. You don't really like the style of music. You know, you don't really know the song to begin with and you're just going to hold back and you're not. That's when you need to what? Sing the most. And, and it, open your mouth and just, and just ask God to help you connect with the substance, with the power, with the truth of the message and the gospel that's being proclaimed together because there's something uniting and something uplifting and something very comforting in the power of the gospel when we come together and do this every single week. Guys, don't underestimate, don't take that for granted. It's a true blessing. You know, singing has been part of the experience of God's people. From the very beginning. Did you know on the night that Jesus was betrayed when he sat down to have the last Passover meal with his disciples? Before they left, what did they do? They sang a hymn together. Did you know that? Matthew 26. Jesus has the Passover meal with his disciples. He's, he's, he's instituting the Lord's Supper. He's going through this whole process. And right before they left the upper room, what did they do? They sang a hymn. If you look at some of these other scriptures, look at what Paul and Silas were doing in prison, right? What were Paul and Silas? They're, they've just gotten beaten to an inch of their life. They're, they're about to have a chance to witness to the Philippian jailer. And look at what it says. They're praying and they're what? Singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening. They're singing the gospel out loud. Praising God to be considered worthy to suffer alongside with him. And notice what time of the night was it? Midnight. In the darkest hour, they were being comforted. They were being uplifted by this beautiful gift of song. Ephesians 5, do, it says, Don't be drunk with wine, that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. This is a command as a church, as believers, we're to address one another in what? Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart and giving thanks always for everything to God, the Father, and in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 3, above all, put on love, which binds everything together again in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, which indeed you were called into one body. There it is, the unity of the body and music singing. Worship is part of this unity. Be thankful and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You see, in the DNA of the church is this gift, this gift of song. And so, guys, I just want to point that out as we, as we begin because I know that God has used singing in your life to bless you. And I pray that you will continue to take advantage of that gift because it is a gift that will not only carry us through this life, but guess what? We're going to be singing 
in the, in the kingdom to come. It's going to be part, very much a part of our experience in the kingdom. Uh, Psalm 96, let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the fields exult and everything in it. All the trees of the forest shall sing for joy before the Lord when he comes. He is coming to judge the earth and he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. Obviously, there's so much we could look into. But I just want to highlight a couple of things there about the gift of song. Amen to that. Now, when it comes to this idea of the plagues, there's really one, there's really, I'm just going to try to emphasize that really just this one thing this morning. And that's this idea that just prior to the pouring out of the final seven plagues that we're going to, we'll, we'll see in, in chapter 16, it says that the temple, the sanctuary in heaven, did anybody catch this? was filled with smoke, and nobody could enter until what? These final seven plagues were finished. And I began to think about that. Now, we do have a little bit of an illustration. When Solomon dedicated the temple in Jerusalem, and the glory of the Lord descended upon the temple, in other words, the Lord said, I have accepted the house that you've built for me and, and the glory of God came down and filled the temple and the smoke was so thick in the temple in Solomon's day that, that no one could what? No one could enter in there because the, they would immediately just be consumed. They would just immediately die in the presence of a holy God. And this is a, the very same thing is happening in, in the heavenly temple as the smoke fills the temple and I began to have this idea in my mind is that where there's smoke, there's what? There's usually fire. And I think that's the best way that this hopefully will help, help you understand what I interpret as far as these last seven plagues. Is that what we're looking at is this idea of the final judgments of God that in this passage they are called the bowls of wrath. Okay? But there is a distinction between these final seven plagues, which I think are being symbolized by the building of smoke in the temple. And then finally, when those plagues are finished, once that is over, then we're going to have the fire. Then comes the fire. Then comes what, what we'll see here in just a minute, which is the, the orge. It's the, it's the finality of God's wrath. And so there is a little bit of a wordplay that we, that we have going on in this passage that I think is worth looking into, and we'll look at that here in just a second. And so I do find this very interesting that the smoke uh, in, the, in the temple, the temple is filled with smoke. So let me just kind of help, help you see how I break this passage down and what really is going on here when it comes to these seven plagues, okay? Because th this, I think, will help clarify some things when it comes to what's happening in this passage and really what's happening in chapter 16 as well as we look at 16 later, okay? So again, we're, we're getting near to the end. As the end draws near, God's righteous anger is going to begin to burn. It's going to start building. It's going to begin burning hotter. That's what this smoke is all about. He's getting what? He's getting angry, okay? It's, it's building up. And then he's pouring out these plagues. Now listen, this is something that is very important when it comes to understanding what this is all about. These last seven plagues, guys, are not indiscriminately just cast out onto, onto everybody on the earth. They are specifically poured out and targeted upon who? The beast and his kingdom. Okay? This is something that is very important when you read... Chapter 16, you will see that every single one of these final seven plagues are poured out specifically on the beast and his followers, the people who have taken the mark, his kingdom, the kingdom of darkness that has established itself on the earth. It is not just indiscriminately poured out on everybody on the face of the earth. It's specifically poured out on a, on a specific group, namely the beast and his kingdom. And so if you see here, in uh, Revelation 15, get my clicker to work, somehow, some way. It says, the sanctuary of the tent of witness was opened. 
And then here come these angels um, with the seven plagues. And then look at what it says. Uh, they were given the seven golden bowls full of wrath, full of the wrath of God who lives forever. And then it says, no one could enter the sanctuary until these seven plagues, these seven bowls of wrath were finished. Okay, so let's talk real quick about this word or this idea, wrath. Now, this is where English translations, I think, are, are a little bit uh, unfortunate, okay? I'm going to do my very best to break this down to you very simply, and it's important, or I wouldn't share it, all right? This helped me tremendously, because this whole idea about God's wrath, I mean, it's, it's probably one of the main issues when it comes to this whole time of the end. People really have a difficult time reconciling how could God's people be on the earth at the same time that God's what? Wrath is being poured out. That to, to, to many people, you can't reconcile those two things. Well, there's a couple of problems with that train of thought. Number one, the word wrath used in this passage is a different word than the word wrath used in other passages. There's really two words that's translated in your English Bibles as wrath. And I'm going I'm to bring this up real quickly, okay? The first word is thumos. The other word is orge. Why does that matter? Why should you care? Well, I'll tell you why. I'm going to give you a good illustration, okay? And this will help you reconcile the difference between thumos and Ordegay. Let me tell you about a guy named Big John. Big John was physically bigger and stronger than everybody else in school, but he had a speech impediment, okay? He was very meek. He was very quiet. He was very soft-spoken. He was very mild. He didn't, he didn't harm anybody, but because he had a speech impediment, there were a lot of kids in the school. What did they do? They picked on him and they bullied him, okay? But Big John, he just, he, he took it and he took it and he took it. He also had a little brother that he always tried to look out for. And, but he just, he never would respond. He never would respond. He let the kids bully him. One day they're after school and the same bunch of kids, little bullies, they're picking on Big John. They're making fun of the way that he has a speech impediment. They won't leave him alone. And he's taking it and he's taking it. And he's starting to get a little bit angry. He's starting to get a little worked up. That's, that's thumos. Thumos, the Greek word thumos, means that you're starting to breathe hard. You're, you're starting to get provoked a little bit, right? Everybody knows what I'm talking about, right? I mean, you kind of start getting a little angry. You feel your blood pressure getting up. Okay, man, I, I, I don't like this. I don't like where this is going. You hadn't snapped yet, but you're getting there, right? The, the anger's starting to build, right? So Big John, he's starting to feel thumos. It's building up, okay? His little brother comes to take for him, and the bullies push his brother down to the ground. All of a sudden, Big John goes from Thumas to what? Orge. He snaps. And when Big John snaps, it ain't pretty. And he exhausts all of the anger that has been what? Building up. Over time, when his orge is poured out, he completely takes care of business. And, you, I mean, you can imagine what he does to the bullies, right? Do you see the difference? There's thumos where God is getting angry. His, his anger is building. The smoke in heaven is starting to build and burn hotter. And he's starting to pour out his plagues upon the earth. He's getting to the final end of the conclusion of his judgment upon this wicked kingdom and the beast and all of the wicked, ungodly people on the earth. But he has not yet reached that place of Ordege. And Ordege, guys, is wrath that is always associated with an all-consuming fire. Once God's anger has reached a boiling point, okay, that's when Jesus is going to explode. That's the difference that I need you guys to understand when it comes to the final seven plagues. More than anything else, if you don't take anything else away from this message today, I just want you to understand 
that these final seven plagues are, first of all, being poured out on the beast in his kingdom, not on everybody else. And it's God's anger is building, and it's in the process of getting to the point of boiling over. And when he reaches that boiling point, that's when Jesus comes back in glory and in flaming fire. God's orge is almost always connected to an all-consuming what? An all-consuming fire. This, this means God's on the scene, and everywhere he goes, he consumes. Okay? That's the difference. And I think that if you understand that, when you look at this passage of Scripture in Revelation, you'll begin to understand what's really happening here. So if you read through some of the passages in the Old Testament and in the New Testament about the difference between this word wrath, because in your Bible it just says God's wrath, the bowls of God's wrath. That means he's angry. He's getting angry. He's getting worked up. He's breathing hard. Okay? Then, then when it comes to Jesus' return, that is the fire. That's the all-consuming fire that, is, that has been stored up. It's all that pent-up and stored-up wrath that God has been holding on to since the very beginning. And it's a settled anger. It's a settled wrath that he will repay and he will have vengeance on that day. So guys, there is a difference. And I think it's important that we point out that difference when it comes to these two different words. And so it's important. When you look at your, you look at your Bibles, sometimes you need to look at the concordances. You need to look at the original languages and say, you know, what do these words really mean? They're not necessarily equal, if you know what I mean. And so you see passages like Nahum, the Lord is jealous and avenging. Uh, the Lord takes vengeance on his uh, enemies. Look at what it says. Uh, the, quake, the mountains quake, the hills melt, his wrath is poured out like, like fire. Okay, guys, this is that orge. Uh, look at Isaiah 66. The Lord will come in what? In fire. This is the day that he snaps. This is the day that all the anger builds to a point and he returns in flaming fire, right? He will render his anger in fury and he will re rebuke with flames of fire. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, it says that we will, be get, we, will give, we will get our relief. We will have our final and ultimate redemption and relief when Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming Fire Again, that's that same theme that you see all throughout Scripture, 2 Peter 3, the heavens and earth that exist are stored up for fire, guys. The earth will melt, the heavens will burn. This is when Jesus comes. This is orge, okay? This is different than what you read in the seven plagues. That, that's the main thing I'm trying to help you understand because our God is an all-consuming fire, Okay? Now, let's look at the Song of Moses as we wrap this thing up. Because again, when you hear something, when you hear something like the Song of Moses in the book of Revelation, then you should probably go look to the Old Testament and find what? The Song of Moses. And say, why is it, why are we, why are we brought, you know, why is he bringing this to our attention? What's the connection here? And I mean, you guys know how. I have tried to show you that the Exodus story, okay, again, the Exodus itself is probably the greatest prophetic pattern that we have in all of Scripture that gives us clues about the, the timing and the elements and the, um, the overall pattern of the end times. Because that which has been done before will be done again. The scriptures and all of prophecy is in patterns. They're in rhythms. They're in themes. And so what we saw happening in Exodus in the days of Moses, it will be replayed many ways in many similar ways in the last days. And we've talked about this so many times before, but I just want to close here. The song of Moses celebrates God's victory over Pharaoh. Okay, and we're going to look at, we're going to look at a couple of, his, uh, couple of these songs here in just a second. Yet ultimately, this is what's amazing. Even when Moses was first singing these songs, after coming out of Egypt and after seeing God do this amazing deliverance and bringing them through the sea and crushing the army of Pharaoh, even after all of that, Moses was not just celebrating a victory song at what God had done for them right then, which he was, but he was also prophetically looking ahead where? To the future. 
and the day of the Lord and God's greatest triumph when Jesus returns. And that's how the scriptures are always unfolding before our very eyes. So let's look at two passages real quick, not, not in totality, just I'm going to pick and choose a couple of verses. Because when you read the scriptures, there are really two primary places where we discover the song of Moses. Exodus 15 and Deuteronomy 32. Exodus 15 and Deuteronomy 32. So let's just, let's just look at a couple of uh, passages. Let's go to Exodus 15. Now, let me, let me read again. Listen to what we read in Revelation 15. Real quick. All right, stay with me. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship you, and your righteous acts have been revealed. Okay, so that's what we get in Revelation 15. Notice how similar these songs are when we look at the songs of Moses. Look at what Moses said. They just came through the Red Sea. Uh, God had just delivered them through the sea, had drowned Pharaoh and his army in the depth of the sea. Look at what Moses, he leads the congregation in singing. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider have been thrown into the sea. Listen to this. The Lord is my strength and my song. Let me ask you that this morning. Is the Lord your song? Remember, it's, it's to unite us and uplift us and to comfort us. But it's not the song itself that unites us and uplifts us and comforts us. Who is it? It's the Lord. He is the one. It's not the song that does it. It's him who does it by using this beautiful gift of song. So look at what it says. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God, I will exalt him for the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Did you know the Lord is a man of war? Do you know God's a warrior? It's part of God's nature that we don't talk about a whole lot. Again, the song of Moses. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. Again, the right hand of the Lord. That should automatically tell you who's at the right hand of God. It's Jesus Christ. He is God's right hand. Okay? He is the one coming. He's the one that will ultimately destroy all of our enemies. And then finally in Exodus 15, uh, look at what it says in verse 11 and 12. Almost an exact quote. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, doing wonders? And then finally, verses 13, it says, You've led your people whom you have redeemed and guided them to your holy abode. You have planted them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, you've made for your abode, the sanctuary, O God, that you have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. You see how Mo what Moses is doing? Even though he's talking about what, he, what God did to Pharaoh right then, he's looking ahead to the ultimate future day when Jesus comes and he brings us all together on his holy mountain after crushing the enemy once and for all. So you got Exodus 15, and then you got Deuteronomy 32. Again, the song of Moses. And this is, again, very reminiscent to what we read in, in Revelation 15. The rock, his work is perfect. His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness, just and upright is he. It sounds almost verbatim for what we read. Look at what it says. For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depth of Sheol, and it devours the earth. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him. And he cleanses his people's land. And again, I mean, you could read more and more and more and more about the Song of Moses and how they're singing the song. Now, here's the thing that's interesting to me. Right now in heaven, they're still singing whose song? Moses. Something that happened... Thousands of years ago, to our, in our perspective, they're still singing the song of Moses and they're singing the song of the Lamb. And so this is what's so fascinating to me. But, but when we talk about the song of the Lamb, I want to bring this final aspect of this whole thing as I bring this whole thing to a conclusion. I want you all to think about this for just one minute. 
when Jesus returns, having defeated the enemy, having established his kingdom, when he will be our God and we will be his people and we will, ta- we will tabernacle with him forever as we talked about last week, do you know what Jesus will do? He will sing over you. He will sing over you and me. Now I want you to stop and ask yourself, what's the voice of Jesus sound like? Can we even begin to imagine what the voice of our creator sounds like as he sings over us, as he leads worship over us? You want to talk about will there be a dry eye in the house, right? Listen to what it says in Zechariah, uh, Zechariah chapter 3. I'm sorry, that should be Zephaniah. I'm sorry, guys, that, that was a, a misprint. This is Zephaniah chapter 3. That, that's wrong. Zephaniah 3. Look at, listen to this. I'm going to close right here. So again, Zephaniah chapter 3 is, is the whole context is here comes the Lord on the day of judgment. He's coming to crush the head of the enemy and he's going to gather his people to himself and he's going to establish his kingdom. And then listen to what it says. This is an amazing promise. Sing for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. Israel's king, the Lord, is among you. No longer will you fear any harm. Now listen. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is among you. He is mighty to save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. I will gather those among you who grieve over the appointed feasts so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Guys, there's coming a day when we will get to experience the greatest Blessing of being in the presence of a holy God, being, being, being raised into immortality, being in a, in a condition where there's no more sin, there's no more death, there's no more sickness, there's no more sorrow. Anybody ready for that? Praise God, I'm ready for that. And we will get to experience a day when we were there in his presence. It's going to be enough that, remember, the Lord's going to serve us at his own table. Remember that? Jesus is going to take up the servant's uh, towel and serve his people at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Number one, that's going to be enough to, to, to just, I'll be undone after that point. And then he's going to start what? Singing over us. Rejoicing over us with song. What a beautiful picture that is. Hey, they're experiencing that right now where? In heaven. When we die and we go to be with the Lord, we get to, we get to become part of this heavenly host. And we get to participate and sing the song of Moses, whatever that sounds like. We get to sing the song of the Lamb, whatever that sounds like. But guys, there's coming a day when he will sing over us. And so I want you to appreciate the gift of song and worship Because it's something that if we practice right now, we're preparing ourselves for what? We're preparing ourselves for heaven. There's not going to be any worship controversy in heaven. I promise you. Because we will all be one. We will all be uh, united in perfect love and perfect harmony. And Jesus will be our worship leader. And we will be able to rejoice and find, draw immense satisfaction and comfort from allowing him to simply sing over us and heal our hearts and heal our, and soothe our souls once and for all. What a wonderful day that will be. What a wonderful day day that will be. So, you know, that's what this whole, as our praise team comes up, that's what's so ironic about this whole passage. Is that it's a passage about wrath Think about it. It's a passage about wrath. It's a passage about judgment. It's a passage about how God will repay. It's a passage about how God has a day of vengeance in his heart. But at the same time that it's a passage about God's wrath, it's also a passage about worship. 
Guys, I believe God has given us the gift of worship as, as one of the many things that we will need to get us what? To get us through. To get us through. Do you know what came out of the horrors of the American slave trade? Do you know what you know how the slaves got through the plantations working in the in the yards and seeing their families beaten on a daily basis and being treated like animals? Do you know what got them through every day? They would sing. They would sing these spiritual songs and they would sing in the fields and they would sing in the homes and they would sing on Sunday mornings and it was the singing, it was the gift of song that got them through some of the most difficult times in human history. And as God's people, we're entering into, again, another time of most difficulty, a difficult time of great tribulation that's coming and I believe God is trying to get our attention and say, guys, singing and praying, and fellowshipping, and loving, and coming together as my people, that's what's going to what? That's what's going to get us through. That's what's going to get us through. Amen? Amen. So here's your, here's your application. Just real, real easy stuff. May the Lord forever be our strength and our song. He's the only one that's worthy, right? Now, that means he's worthy to be praised in good times and in sorrow and in joy. Okay? May he always be your strength in your song. And let's don't underestimate the blessing of corporate worship. Guys, I know, especially you men, I hate to call you out, a lot of you men out there, you just don't like to sing. It's just something about it. You feel, you feel less masculine or something. Hey, let's try to... Make this time together more of, a, of an emphasis, guys, where we're really seeing worship for what it is, that it's not just an exercise that we go through. It's not just what we do at church. There's something truly powerful behind the uniting of our voices together and singing these awesome uh, truths of God out loud together. And I pray that our, our worship dynamic would change and that we would see a different enthusiasm when it comes to our people coming together and singing. I do, I do desire to see that. I pray, and it's got to be something God does. We can't manufacture that. We can't, you know, make that happen on our own. It's got to be something God does in, in each and every one of your hearts. But don't underestimate, don't take for granted what happens when we come together and sing, okay? And so we get to do that together each and every week. Praise God, hallelujah. So let me close this in a word of prayer, and then guess what we're going to do? We're going to sing. We're going to do it one more time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I love you. I thank you for the gift of song. I thank you for Jesus, who is our song. He is our strength. And I can't wait for the day when you, Lord, will sing over us. But until that day, Lord, all we can do is sing to you. And Lord, to make a joyful noise. And we want that to be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen.